my name is Nate Clinton. I'm um, executive director of Design It North America. Design It's part of Wipro Digital and uh, Wipro globally. And what we do is we do strategic design for clients around the world. Um, my role is really focused on North America and you know building teams here in our primary studios in San Francisco and uh, Brooklyn, New York, as well as um, other places around the United States and Canada. Um, and, you know, working with them to understand their needs and really create design, uh, you know, de design solutions, whether it's a digital design or service design or, um, you know, the launch of new ventures or really the future of their business, um, all of those kinds of questions. Great. Uh, and Tim, why don't you tr introduce yourself? I'm Tim McCoy. I'm Senior Director of User Experience at Pivotal. I've been with Pivotal for about eight years now. I started on the consulting side, Pivotal Labs. And for the last several years, I've been in our R&D organization, working with Pivotal Cloud Foundry, Pivotal Greenplum, and uh, now my main focus is with Pivotal Gemfire and Pivotal Cloud Cache. Kind of our big question today is to, is to talk a little bit about the state of modern design as it relates to software development. I'd also love to get into a bit of the past and the evolution uh, of design and and how that has evolved as software development has evolved around agile, agile methodologies, lean, those kinds of things. I imagine it's, it's changed pretty dramatically over the years. Uh, and you guys have a bit of a, quite a bit of experience in this space. So uh, maybe we could start talking a little bit about um, how you guys, kind of your, your past at Cooper, tell us a little bit about that. Um, and then maybe we can get into uh, some of the things you're doing now. So I joined Cooper in 2004 maybe, and uh, worked, there for a number of years, really uh, at a point in the kind of uh, maturity of the design practice in software where it was a lot of waterfall work, a lot of upfront, uh, front-loaded research heavy, uh, then working to develop a design that you thought was going to be uh, a really great solution outcome for your, for your customer, for your users. And then once you had that and you had it nice and documented up, you then engage more directly with engineering organization to see that thing built, right? And uh, in my evolution in design, I think, uh, goes along with how a lot of the industry is going around the 2010 timeframe. When we saw that uh, designers just weren't seeing the outcomes they wanted from the work we were doing, right? Like we designed great things only to see them a shadow of themselves, of their former selves, when they actually made it, you know, to someone's screen. And so I got involved in the agile community and understanding how we could get uh, the work that we were doing as user experience and interaction designers to mesh better. Uh, and that has that's a two-way street. Mesh better with the actual craft of building and shipping software, and that's what led me to Pivotal. Great. And uh, Nate, maybe you could similarly share kind of your journey to how you got here today. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I guess I could say I, I sort of took the baton, so to speak, from Tim. I joined Cooper in 2012, just after Tim had left. And, you know, Tim was out kind of breaking ground in terms of how does design work with software development more more closely to achieve those outcomes. And Cooper was facing, I think, you know, in the years following Tim's departure, you know, facing the same kind of uh, challenges in terms of what, how do we get the world to, uh, you know, to build the things that we want. And, you know, by remaining independent as a small consultancy, Cooper, you know, had some limitations. I think, you know, we didn't have a big uh, um, engineering team that we could direct um, in the same way that Pivotal has kind of put those two ingredients together. And, um, and it led to, um, I think, just eventually us saying, look, we have to find the right um, sort of place to live where we can achieve real outcomes. And so, um, you know, in, in 2017, I guess it was, uh, so almost two years ago, um, you know, I, we, we made the decision to, to, to fold Cooper into a larger organization that had some of those, some of those capabilities where we could, you know, actually achieve the impact at scale that we had all dreamed about for, you know, for decades. Um, you know, a lot of in-house teams have been built, you know, at the, at the big tech companies. I mean, even the small ones that, that uh, you know, that have sort of 
maybe beat the consultancies to that to that reality. And um, so joining a bigger company made a lot of sense. So that's really the evolution, actually, is that these small independent design-only shops, it turns out that's not enough. It can't be uh, just design. It has to be design plus other things. And so I think one one pathway was Tim's toward, you know, the pivotal model and, um, and, and then Cooper kind of evolved maybe in the same fashion a little bit later. So we kind of realized and uh, learned that lesson uh, in the same, in the same way. Right. And so that, that larger organization being Wipro. Um, and so right. now you feel like you've got an opportunity to affect outcomes in a way that maybe it's an independent company, uh, a smaller consultancy you weren't able to do. Uh, so, so that makes perfect sense. So, so I want to get into, uh, I mean, I want to definitely want to dive into some of the, the, the important, um, not just challenges, but it's just important parts of the discipline of design. But I'm going to show my night, uh, night. I'm going to show the fact that I don't know a ton about this topic <laughs> by asking the following question is for our audience. Could you kind of just help us understand the role of designers on, you know, balanced teams. So we hear a lot about, well, balanced team uh, is made up of software developers, um, project product managers, uh, designers, help us understand the role specifically that designers play. Uh, in that process on that team? Yeah, I'll start. I'll talk a little bit about uh, how we typically see teams work at Pivotal. Is, uh, you know, designers play a, a pretty bridge role, right, between uh, end users, the product strategy, and implementation. So as designers, we end up uh, leading a lot of user research and doing a lot of uh, synthesis and understanding of like all the inputs and really facilitating conversations with that balanced team on, you know, what are the things we're hearing? What does that mean uh, as far as how we ought to interpret what we're hearing in terms of how to shape the product to react to that? And then how do we, uh, when we're actually at the point of implementation, right, we also have that friction of, okay, well, this thing that we thought was going to be the right way, whether it's because we're getting feedback from uh, early iterations of the application that things should change, or because we run into some technical, technical constraints where we need to see something change in the design itself. Uh, and designers really play that, play that bridge between those roles, I think is a good way to think about it. Yeah. I like the way you're talking about um, design as facilitation because you know, design is almost certainly about, it's, it's also about craft, for sure, like creating things. Um, but so much of the designer's job in this context of, you know, product, technology, design, is, is facilitating the conversation, but not just being a good, you know, person to stand up in front of a room and kind of get everyone excited. Um, because I think there's a lot of design theater that happens in that, in that realm, um, which maybe isn't so productive. Uh, but in fact, actually arming everybody with the right tools to make good decisions. So one way I like to think about design is, you know, product managers uh, definitely have this sense of, of accountability and ownership. And I think rightly so in terms of ultimately the business has to achieve something, right? And that's their, their kind of uh, their, their purview and their mandate. Um, but, but as a design team, as a designer inside of a team, you know, we want to help both developers and product managers have the right information, the right tools to make, to make good decisions. And sometimes that means, you know, being relatively prescriptive and saying, here's a, here's a solution. This is the right solution based on X, Y, and Z. And sometimes that means, you know, we're hearing lots of things from the market. You know, maybe we're hearing it from product management. Maybe we're hearing it from development, uh, you know, through user feedback. And we, we synthesize that and say, here's what this means. Here's how we interpret that. So just as Tim was saying, you know, kind of part of it is interpreting and helping to translate. Um, it's not just facilitating a meeting or facilitating ideation. It's really about helping everybody have good decision-making tools. Yeah, you know, if you think about at, at, its, in its, in an, at an abstract level, design is really about taking in a whole bunch of inputs understanding like reading a situation reading context and then distilling that down into something that is consumable right and and on one level designers do that with the user needs and the product 
but the thing that this this facilitation is really doing that at the level of of the team and organizationally playing that same role right of like there's all these inputs there's all these factors going into things and and a designer's toolkit includes tools and techniques and approaches and frames of mind to help distill that and make sense of it and simplify it in a way that the, the whole team can understand and get behind and move forward with. Interesting. So, I mean, in my ignorance, I think design, okay, I think of you guys are, are making some of the decisions around what am I going to see on the screen when I'm using an application on my phone? But it's a lot more than just design. Uh, it's just, it's a lot more than just what I see on my screen, at least what goes into it. It sounds like, so it almost sounds like you have to play the role of, well, maybe therapist isn't the right word, but you've got a, a, I was going to say group therapy. Um, but, but tell me, it sounds like it could be a really chaotic process because you've got, as you mentioned, all the different inputs you're getting. Um, you're talking to users, you're talking to the business side, you're talking to the, the developers. I, I imagine developers say things like, well, that's a great idea, but we can't technically make that work or whatever. So talk about, you know, so what are some of those tools? What are some of those techniques you use to get the conversation going, uh, to facilitate the conversation and then probably the hardest part, taking everything you've learned and distilling that down into a design. Yeah, I mean, synthesis, I like to talk about, um, it, this is this process of synthesizing, taking lots of information and distilling it down into something consumable, uh, the way Tim was describing that, I think. And the tools vary quite a bit across this discipline. Um, it kind of depends on the, on the situation, but but for sure, I think at, at its core, it's about, um, you know, uh, restating things in a way that's sort of understandable. So a lot of times you'll hear, you know, uh, the voice of the user. There's lots of uh, phrase, phrases used in the industry about hearing from the customer, let's say. And it's really tempting to act on that in a, in a kind of reactive or defensive way. Let's fix whatever it is someone, someone claims is wrong. And it's, it's uh, so one of the kind of, I guess, fundamental tools of design is simply asking, you know, what's, what's motivating this, this feedback to begin with, rather than reacting to the feedback on its face. Um, so a, a classic example of this is, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I used to work for a, a product company back in the day, um, and we were building tools, tools for institutional financial managers. And uh, we'd hear a lot of them asking us to, uh, to put a button on the screen that said download to Excel. And of course, this was actually a pretty easy thing for us to do. We could just put the button there and say, say download to Excel and, uh, and it would be great. And they would all be happy, presumably. Um, but our CEO was, was, was pretty clever and he said, let's not ever do that. Let's not ever put the button on the screen that lets them download to Excel. Instead, let's use that as a way of asking them, what are they going to do with that in Excel? And then we learn something more fundamental about what they, what their goals are and what they're trying to achieve. So if we can help, I think one of the biggest, the most important tools that we have as designers is to restate things, to restate desires and motivations as, as goals coming from users, as, as more fundamental goals than simply uh, some kind of task like download to Excel, which is, uh, you know, you know, it's a perfectly legitimate sort of feature request, let's call it. Um, but it masks a whole bunch of interesting and useful knowledge that we can gain. And so helping to ask those kinds of why questions, I think, is one uh, really important tool for synthesis because it takes a lot of, you know, feedback that might be coming from a big group of a cloud of users out there and helps to find, you know, what are the insightful kind of driving factors underneath it all. Um, so things like that where we, and it, it doesn't have to be black magic or dark art or anything. It's very, it's, a lot of it's very simple, you know, let's, let's cluster ideas into related categories and let's, let's try to sort of boil things up a little bit so that we can start to think at a high level about, um, you know, what really matters here and try to, to move the pieces around and prioritize. Ultimately we have to decide, you know, not just, not just how does something work, but what should we build in the first place? And that's, you know, that's, that's kind of, uh, you know, that's the more expensive question, let's say, um, where if you get that one wrong, um, you know, you've, you've wasted a lot of time and effort. So, uh, so I, that, that's my perspective on kind of synthesis. I always say it's the hard part, you know, going out and doing the research, asking questions is, is relatively easy. You can, you can train people to, to have a good conversation, uh, but making sense of it all is actually pretty difficult. So, 
helping the team do that well is really a, a really key part of our job, I think. Yeah, I, I would back that up a thousand percent. Um, I think another synthesis tool uh, that we go back to again and again is visualizations, right? And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean something beautiful graphically, right? In fact, most of the time I don't mean that at all. What I mean is, is actually getting down physically somewhere, whether it's on a you know, real whiteboard or virtual whiteboard or document of some sort, yeah. whatever it is, some um, map, some visualization of whatever the issue is we're talking about. If it's a system, it's like how things, how, how a workflow actually flows through people for a task or how um, a set of features relate to one another in, in, the, in the overall flow of your application, things like that, right? And what a tool that designers can often use, will often use is to create this artifact, this visualization of a system, of a concept that um, on its own is very clarifying when you're coming up with it, but its real power is in making everyone else who's got this loosely formed mental model themselves of what that system might be to all look at the same version of it and be able to say, yes, that's what I think it is too. Or, Oh, I didn't realize you did that. Or no, there's no way that's actually how it works because my model says this, right? And so it's getting everyone to have the same conversation around the same thing. is like a real mm -hmm. synthesis superpower. Yeah. And that's yeah. yeah, that's great. So it's, the idea that you've you've got to get something on paper, uh, yeah. metaphorically, before you, in order you've got to ground it in some kind of reality. Uh, otherwise, you could just be having this really wide ranging conversation with everybody having you know mm -hmm. ideas, and they all may all be great, but um, yeah. how do you center that conversation around something real? Uh, so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, a lot of design artifacts are exactly that. They're all just sort of variations on a theme, right? It's yeah. whether it's a persona or a journey map or whatever it is, blueprint or something, these are all simply what you're describing, which is taking all that data or information or ideas and encapsulating it somehow and, and not as a finished thing, but as a, re, as a tool to elicit reaction or to elicit conversation that at least we're all talking about the same thing. That's a really exactly. great way of putting it. Right. And of course, you know, this, I, I'm sure this, this process happens when you're developing, you know, a brand new, uh, application or piece or so piece of software, but of course iteration is is a big part of software mm -hmm. develop modern software development. So how do you approach this on an ongoing basis? How do you have these conversations in a way that that in other words, you probably don't have the time to have these big grand conversations all the time. You've kind of got to you've got to iterate yeah. quickly over time. How do you actually practically yeah. put this into into effect? I guess is my question. Well, I, I think I, I'd love to hear Tim's take on this. Uh, you know, on sort of on the ground, so to speak, at Pivotal. But I think, you know, from, from my perspective, at least, um, uh, you know, it, it's a mistake to think that uh, these kinds of visualizations are all, are, are, are all grand, right? And, and I think a lot of people um, maybe think about, maybe one misconception about design is that, that it always has to be so grand, right? It always has to be back to first principles. And we have to like, you know, build everything from scratch, you know, all the way. Um, but as you're pointing out, I think it's important to remember that, you know, things are iterative and software exists and we have to make it better. Sometimes we can't just throw it all away every time. So, you know, one of the things we use uh, a lot for this kind of iterative uh, conversation is um, just simple stories and narratives. So, you know, if you, if, you know, if, if you can tell a story about somebody you know, you can use a persona or you can use some other kind of tool like that. But, but if, you can, if you can tell a, a convincing story about somebody uh, succeeding or using a system in some particular way and then tell another story about them using it in a different way, you can iterate without having to worry too much about screens and buttons and have a good conversation about what, what's the experience we want them to have. We want them to have this really great experience that does X differently and we're going to talk about it as a story. And doing that is a very cheap way of um, of keeping the conversation grounded on you know actual things. So you get away from conversations like, well, they might want to do this or they might want to do that. That's a lot of they might want to is a is a I think a red flag as the start of a sentence, right? 
Uh, we want to tell actual stories and narratives, and then we can throw them away because they're cheap, right? We can change the words um, without having to redraw lots of screens. So I think one important synthesis tool um, for iterative product design and product development is, is narrative. It's not necessarily even using screen design. It's, it's actually just sort of uh, storytelling. Um, and that can take lots of forms, of course. You could, you know, you could sketch things or you could, you could, you could just simply use a, a written sort of step-by-step -step kind of narrative or a, you know, even kind of a storyboard or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we also I mean, take it in a, a, a little different lens. Actually, maybe it's coming back to something you said around it not being, uh, Jeff, you said about it not being grand and, and it just being like mm. uh, a, a normal everyday thing to do things like this. Um, you know, I see it pivotal all the time and not just designers at all by any means. You know, an engineering pair going up to a whiteboard and sketching a data schema or sketching the uh, the flow through uh, you know a set of classes in their in their code um, or a product manager talking about um, the particular like feature set and where what's going to flow and what release and why things go together right just like giving giving mm. uh, giving form to things that are in your head, right? And I think, th and I think that as designers at Pivotal, we play a, a big role in kind of championing that concept and that process. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's by no means just the designer thing. Um, but I think that there's a, lot, there's a lot to that, just that aspect of getting things out right, and having it uh, there to, the, to have a common conversation around. Um, and then in terms of the, you know, I think there is, there are times, you're right, you can't always have the time, uh, or is, nor, nor is it always the right time to go big and create this grand uh, framework for everything, right? And when you pick up, you know, when you're out there actually shipping software every day, you know, there's times when you will pick up something that, uh, that has never had that done for it initially, right? So you're like, well, let's try to do some of this to make sense of what we think is here, right? And so that's one way you do it. Or, or we'll do things like, uh, we have a couple of uh, very high level models of interaction and relationship that we use inside Pivotal R&D to help ground the way that we approach uh, the user experience for our various interfaces and products. And, you know, that goes, there's an effort that was probably a year ago that got us the, the foundation we use today. And over the course of the next, over the last year and the next year probably, um, we learned things from being actively developing and working with customers that, oh, that, that thing that we assumed in our model is a little bit different. Or, oh, and this new thing that didn't, wasn't really a factor when we started this model now has come into play. And so, you know, the model kind of ages and gets lots of virtual stickies put on it as you as it evolves and then at some point it comes time to say hey let's re let's you know let's essentially refactor our uh our, our baseline view of the world and let's undertake another larger effort to kind of reset uh, or recalibrate you know what our baseline is and so yeah you're always dealing with with kind of levels of decay in those things. Um, but what's nice, and, and this I think comes back to the idea of stories, if you're telling stories around those things, um, that you can manage that decay because your stories can, can um, evolve away from some of the early things you've done. And that's okay because you, know, you told that story nine months ago and you, you shift that and you learned for it. And now you're telling a new story. Right. I like that. Yeah. I like that concept of stories that I think that makes, makes a lot of sense intuitively. Uh, and people, I see that as a great way to, for people to kind of grok a new idea when you're couching it in, in the language of a story versus uh, more technical terms. So I, you know, a lot of our listeners are developers. I'd love to hear about, you know, what are some of the biggest, how about this? What are some of the biggest misconceptions developers have about designers and working with designers? Um, 
and what are some of the challenges you've faced working with developers and how do you how do you navigate some of those i think developers are they're very creative people and they're very uh you know curious and they're very um they have a deep uh desire to know that the work they're doing means something right and so they you know i i think they often um I think I think we're we're very much cousins, designers and developers, in a lot of ways, because I think a lot of businesses consider um, engineering services and design services as kind of a pair of hands or a you know kind of a service that is provided to a larger um, kind of vision. And yet we're populated by all these people who really care a lot about what the solution is and how it works and is it the best solution possible? And you know. Um, I, I almost never hear developers say that's not possible. That's not, you know, technically feasible. Yeah, right. Is I know we talk about that a lot, but they have a really expansive um, uh, vision of kind of what's possible in the world because software is really very, you know, it's almost limitless in in some ways. Um, and I like that about working with developers. I think um, maybe where the the challenge comes around. Um, Designers really needing to uh, to to be attuned to kind of how developers see the world, right? They uh, they want to make sure they're not wasting effort, right? Um, and designers don't quite think about wasted effort in the same way, I think. So there's there's a lesson uh, that designers need to learn about how to um, to help developers see that what they're doing is efficient and also what they're doing is meaningful, right? Because I think developers want to see uh, the impact they're having. They want to know why we made a decision. So a really important thing that designers can do as they work with developers is to, to help developers understand the, the motivation or the, the thinking behind design decisions, let's say, so that they can kind of feel on board and, and a part of the process because often they have a lot of great thinking and a lot of, uh, I think, fresh perspectives that designers maybe hadn't taken into account yet. So, um, being good listeners there too, and having that kind of partnership, you know, be a collaborative one as opposed to a, a, a telling versus receiving one. If that makes sense, um, I don't know how. I don't know if I'm describing anything that. I wholeheartedly agree. I, I, think, I think that um, something that you said there around the idea that. Uh, in a lot of ways, it is the designer's responsibility to understand how to work in a developer's world, more so than yeah. it is like, here's what developers need to know about designers so that we can be happy together. No. Right? It really. <laughs> no. <laughs> so you're putting the burden so, on, on you. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think I do agree. Probably 90% on, on the designers of the world to understand the realities of development in order to. Um, play well in in that environment where you're actually shipping software um, mm -hmm. some of the things that uh, you know that can help from a developer's first perspective is uh, is to assume good intentions I guess right this is such a broad grand thing to say about about your colleagues right but um, and of course, it places a burden on everyone to have good intentions because you don't want people assuming you have good intentions. <laughs> no. um, but yeah, to that to that point of like, you know, when there's friction because a designer wants something a certain way and that is clashing with some development reality or whatever, um, that it's not because the designer's stubborn and just wants something cool and pretty. It's because the designer sees that there's a user value and therefore a business value to doing it that way. And uh, that then it's on the designer to, like you said, Nate, to bring, to bring some of that down, right? Because I think you're, you're very true that uh, there's, there are few developers that I've ever met who just want to code and don't care that, that if what they do matters, right? And they want to be able to make sure they're doing the right thing too. And that they're they're making an having an effect uh, mm -hmm. with the work they do. Absolutely. So your your objectives are aligned, uh, and yeah. if you're both going into it with good faith, uh, it sounds like you know you can be effective. Um, but Nate, you mentioned something that kind of caught my ear. That that uh, if I'm ho hopefully I'll repeat it correctly. That developers kind of think about the way they use their time and efficiency a little different than than designers. What did you What did you mean by that? Well, I guess I I think we have different. I, I think the two disciplines have different concepts of time. Um, 
software is so often, I think it's evolved in this way where, where software development, it, it, it gets boiled a lot down to chunks of time or units of, of effort. Um, and that, that's true of, you know, agile methodologies and other, and other, you know, non-agile things where lots of software planning happens where we try to plan things out in units. And, and so I think developers have sort of train themselves to think in terms of effort and, and, and uh, being as efficient as possible um, in terms of it could be time or it could be, you know, keystrokes or whatever it is. Um, they, they actually, they, they think a lot about that. I, I, I believe, at least in my experience, um, working with development teams and whereas designers, um, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, they're, they're sort of, there, there's this different concept of time. I think, Designers really need time uh, to 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 kind of immerse and you know and like get it all sort of loaded in and feel like we're sort of swimming in 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 information and I think uh, or marinating I guess is the right word because it, it really is kind of time time needed to to get it all in internalized and oh. it's a different kind of uh, um, incremental process it's not it's not it's not quite so bite sized or it, it's not so it's not so easy to, to divide it up into tiny chunks. It's the um, consistency that, of output, right? Yeah. Developers are striving for a little consistency lumpy. of output. And design it, yep. just doesn't work that way. Mm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It, it's maybe one of the fundamental reasons why Agile has been so, it's been so difficult actually to sort of merge design and Agile over the, over the past decade. Or it's been, you know, a challenge, right? Because yeah. because the two kind of mental models at the time are a little bit different. Um, well, that's interesting. So we've and tried I, to invent ways of, of making it mesh a little better. Right? Yeah. Well, that's that's a good segue into you know take us into the you know, to the extent you can the evolution of design. So, you know, you mentioned it being a bit of a challenge to kind of mesh agile with design methodologies that you're I guess were more traditional. Um, talk about kind of where where you were as a as a discipline ten years ago, and and how that's changed with with agile. I mean, we we touched about the iterative process and a lot of the um, a lot of the practices you use, but but maybe kind of walk us through a little bit the evolution uh, and how it's evolved over time. Yeah, I, I can talk about it from uh, from mostly Pivotal's point of view, but just my experience in the agile community from two thousand nine or eight or so. Uh, Till now, you know, in in early days, design was really not a part of of a lot of agile process, and and Pivotal's situation in particular as a extreme programming based agile shop, um, XP kind of just assumes that good inputs have happened somewhere upstream, and that they have that's had this has resulted in a prioritized backlog of things to build. And um, originally that the, the, the good inputs typically came from product management in some way or shape or form, right? Um, and sometimes those inputs were pretty ill-defined, just like here's a feature we need or a problem that you know, we have to not have. Um, and other times they were pretty well specified and, and clarified so that there was real, uh, you know, good, well-formed stories to, to deliver on. And when design came into that equation, the first place that they ended up getting put was, okay, well, let's get them, let's see where they fit in this delivery backlog, right? And designers ended up being um, pulled along with the development flow, right? Like, the, the, this development story is ready. Like, what's the design? It's like, I don't know. This is where this, crunch, this time crunch comes in, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, well, we had a story that needed to get built. And like prior to a user experience person being on the team, they, maybe the developer would have just coded it up with and just like thrown buttons on the screen. I don't mean that just literally, but like they would have done the best that they could to, to put the interface out that got the job done, right? And some, you know, some developers, some teams um, were very successful that way and had the design sense or whatever else to, to create good products that way. And a lot, a lot didn't. And you end up with a lot of pretty clunky software, right? And the first place designers ended up was in the, like in between the, the directive having come from 
product management of like, this is what we need to do. And the developers saying, okay, great, we're gonna build that. And like, there we are in the middle getting crunched. And so uh, at Pivotal, what we've really tried to do, what we really ha have done and focused on doing is moving the designer upstream, right? To a place uh, closer to where, and you know, I in no way wanna call this waterfall, but closer to the traditional model where well, first you figure out what you're gonna build and then you go build it, right? Now, in an agile world, that's, that's done in tiny little chunks as opposed to the entire software product, right? So what we typically do at Pivotal is we have two different work streams, that one that feeds the other, and that actually, the feedback from the output of that feeds back into the original. So dual track agile is the industry term, where essentially mm. uh, product management and, and design will work primarily out of a, uh, a work stream. It may be a formal backlog in Pivotal Tracker. It might be something less formal like a Kanban board in Trello. It might be something less formal than that, like a list in Asana of things that they know they need to be working on, right? Um, and the goal there is the discovery work and the, and the definition of what we should, what the problems are we need to solve and then what should we be building, right? Um, and the end result of that is that developer user stories get created in the, in the development tracker, right? So the, delivery, the, the discovery track says, this is what we should be building. And the delivery track is, this is how we're gonna build it, right? And now PM design and engineering are all involved in that delivery track as well, because like I said, you don't have a fully specced, you know, waterfall based, here is what you're building, it's, this is the need we've identified. This is the way we're going to approach solving for it. Um, and so that then designers then get to, uh, and, and that discovery backlog is less, um, it's less regimented, I guess, right? It's, it's looser. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have that same, you don't typically have that same um, estimation process of getting a velocity down and understanding, right? Like your forcing function is your, is your delivery track. Like this is how fast the team can, build software and though so that factors in to how what time you spend above it right and you can buffer some of that time ahead and beyond so really keeping them uh tiered like that has has helped us to make design uh, a healthier part of the process it's not perfect but it's it certainly come a long way from the early days mm. yeah that's interesting i think you know at, at wipro digital and design it we've uh, we don't call it the same thing but it's a similar concept where we kind of put we try to put the quote-unquote production design or the sort of close to the metal design on some rails right so that there's some kind of framework or some sort of foundation that they have to to go with and some sort of you know modules or standards or some sort of tools that they can use to to solve those those problems so there's some kind of definitional work that happens, call it sprint zero or whatever you want to call it. And then it then then design obviously gets involved in that delivery also. So yeah, it, it is it is a very similar similar model. And I think, you know, there there's as far as the evolution goes, I mean we're you know I think we're just starting to get to this mature place with with design and agile happening together um, more harmoniously. And you you see a lot of like let's do it where let's do a staggered thing where design, you know, happens one sprint in advance or something along those lines. And I think that even kind of misses the point a little bit too. But and yeah. so that's why these more sophisticated kind of uh, dual track models, I think will end up being, um, being the right way forward. Yeah. Yeah. There's something that, that uh, you sort of touched on there around this idea of modules and, and frameworks, right? Like, so, um, the biggest thing happening in the design world right now is design systems and front-end frameworks. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. um, and that's exactly just to, to allow for that kind of thing, right? Where you don't have to have designers as uh, gates in the process for everything that has to go into the product, right? You figure out what is the toolkit that, that implementers can use to do things like when you need a new table with three buttons on it and uh, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that results in this widgety workflow, like great, there's, there, are, mm -hmm. there are concepts for that. 
Um, it's really interesting in that it brings me back to uh, my time at Cooper when uh, a major part of the work that we did in the uh, in the third phase, the final third of our engagements, was develop this system that was very robust and flexible and could grow to accommodate uh, changes over time to your application, right? Um, and but of course, we, we you know back in two thousand and six, um, we did that in some you know, whatever it was, Adobe FrameMaker or some god awful thing. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and it was a document that we delivered to our customer, to our clients, to the development teams that they could then use as the toolkit to build it. And now, you know, we went through this dark time, I think, in agile uh, and design, where we stopped doing the former of coming up with a good holistic system. But we hadn't yet developed the latter, which is develop as we go a living robust system right mm. and that's where we're headed right now is, is mm. organizations having that kind of uh that toolkit that framework that set of modules where designers yeah. can work at the level of you know here's the workflow here's the here's the problem here's the feature here's the the way we're going to approach this and then the details of implementation of that you know the pixel perfectness uh, isn't something that is bespoke anymore, right? You can actually just say, well, use that component, of course, right? Like, and it's yeah. yeah. Design systems are interesting. It is definitely a new frontier. It's, um, it's also a bit, I don't know, it's a bit of, a, a bit of like the Wild West new frontier as well. Uh -huh. there's, there's some dark things happening out there and some dangers uh, that we're just beginning to learn about, um, you know, like where if the design system is there, then anything that uses the design system is the correct solution uh, kind of thinking yes, or, sure. or, or being sort of beholden to the system as if it's, you know, as if it's um, a, a design system in itself is somehow, it, it somehow delivers business value um, over and above, you know, the, the benefits you're describing like efficiency and so on. So there's, there's like over-reliance on design systems and, and, uh, and, thinking that if you have a design system, then all is well, and mm -hmm. you know, no, no need for more designers. So that, that sort of, those pitfalls aside, I do think it's, a, it's a, an improvement in the industry and something that, again, we're learning, it's, it's still, it needs maturing and you know, people are still learning how to do it. Um, and, and a lot of our colleagues are, are, at, are at that frontier and, and you know, kind of experimenting with new models. And I, I'll be curious to see you know, how design systems end up as, you know, part of design systems are interesting. They're not just a, a, a an artifact, you know, some code samples, right, and some design modules. It's actually an organizational problem to implement a good design system, right? You have to get people to adopt it. You have to get people to feel like it's worth updating and, oh, yeah. you know, maintaining. And so it, it, it actually brings in all these other interesting kind of organizational challenges that, um, you know, that we haven't, that we hadn't thought about before. Um, yep. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's definitely an evolving uh, an evolving part of the discipline. Yeah, it definitely sounds like an industry or discipline kind of in flux. And as a as a designer, you have to. It sounds like you really have to be able to adapt quickly, and and be mm -hmm. thoughtful about the tools and techniques you're using, and not just kind of accept, okay, this is this is the standard way because there is no standard way. You're still kind of developing it. Yeah. Um, which again, kind of leads to my, my, my next question. We only have a little bit of time left, but I am curious about, we talked a little bit about your backgrounds earlier, but let's go back mm -hmm. even further. Like what, what got you in, in, interested in, in design and what is the back, what does the background of a designer look like? What, what's the, how do you get into this field? Is it were you, were, <laughs> are you more of a creative type? Or are you more of a technical type? How do you end up in design? It's, I think the answer is new now. It used to be different, right? For Tim and I, probably it's different than, the yeah. new generation um, just just coming into the field now because you know when we were starting this wasn't even a profession really it was it was a or it was, in my case it was a nascent one so um, you know I think new designers are are coming into this with a, a little bit better set of tools that you know frankly you know some of which were developed at Cooper back in the day and uh, and, and across the industry of course um, um, but yeah our our backgrounds are probably different than you'll see in a new in a new designer out there today. Um, 
Tim, what what is your early background? I don't, I don't even know. I, I'm, I'm yeah, Ryan, like 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 most folks of my uh, vintage of of in user experience design, um, liberal arts major, right? Um, yeah. I, I I actually started uh, in the industry by teaching myself HTML and getting a job as a front end developer, mm. uh, and as I got into the business of building websites. I was immediately curious about like, well, why are we building it this way? Like, who's going to use it? What's it for? Like, mm -hmm. Is this really what they need? Right? And I was gravitated towards the, the few people in my agency at the time uh, whose job it was to understand that. Right? And, and so um, I ended up coming into the, into the discipline just through uh, mentorship and, and guidance of colleagues mostly, right? Um, and you still see that, right? Uh, you definitely, yeah. what's, what's, what's very true is that, you know, these days there are a number of really good programs in uh, collegiate and, you know, postgraduate level courses or, or, or you know, um, programs for user experience design for an intersection of design and business is a really fascinating mm -hmm. one, right? Um, I know of a few programs in that vein and you still see people come from adjacent disciplines within tech, right? Developers who think enough about, you know, why they're doing what they're doing that they realize that becomes more interesting to them than actually implementing the, what they're doing. And so they, they move that way. Um, mm -hmm. Product managers who gravitate more towards the user side than the business and market analysis side, you know, things and they realize, oh, I actually care about you know, that aspect of it more. Um, people from uh, testing or education, places like that, where, where you're really focused on understanding someone's needs and then doing something to meet them, right? I mean, that's, that's really what mm -hmm. uh, this job does. Yeah. I, yeah, I have a, a similar, I guess, well, I went to a small liberal arts school in Minnesota, and it's funny you mentioned liberal arts because, um, and I guess more broadly, social sciences and humanities and so on. Yeah. Um, we definitely hire for that uh, at Design It. That's a really great, you know, people from the education world or from, you know, uh, who studied literature or, you know, or really kind of human-centered, you know, uh, uh, Fields of thought really um, can be trained, I guess, to use to reach, you know, to refocus that lens on technology in a way that is really kind of rich and and, and adds a lot to the teams that we build. Um, I have a colleague, Andrew Coptiel, who likes to say that design is the liberal arts of tech, and it's true. It's it's you know, it's like yeah. there, there's a kind of um, a storytelling part, a piece of it that's really important um, to to people who do design um, and. And yeah, we, we definitely try to find pockets of, of untapped potential in those other in those other areas. Psychology is a really uh, fruitful um, area for, for designers and, and, and all the other you know, sort of uh, human centered disciplines like that. Well, as a as a fellow liberal arts major, I'm I'm glad to hear that that uh, <laughs> that industry is open to, to open to us. Yeah. Um, yep. Fantastic. So we're just about out of time. Uh, I did want to just touch on, uh, of course, the partnership between Pivotal and, and Wipro Digital. Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly young partnership, just kind of getting started. Uh, mm -hmm. Although we did, uh, Pivotal was lucky enough to just win the Digital Transformation Partner of the Year Award from, from Wipro. Uh, I, was, I was down in Florida for your uh, leadership event and was pleasantly surprised to, uh, to win the award. That mm -hmm. was great. Um, but it, as we as we kind of start to grow the partnership, what's your um, how do you see the impact of of our two organizations working together on our joint customers? I know from my from my perspective, Pivotal's goal is really to uh, influence and, and change the way that world builds software, right? And that's not something that we can do on our own with our fifteen hundred people or however big we are, right? So. Um, I know this goes comes all the way from Rob me, right? Like the idea of, of just opening our toolkit and opening our approach and saying like, we think that this is a great way to work. Uh, we want other people to be able to 
take part in this as well. So I think having a partner like Wipro Digital to be able to um, help to just bring more people to that approach is a big one for me. Yeah, and I think, you know, Wipro is, if, if nothing else, it, it is just a, an organization that has an estate, an insatiable desire to learn and grow and, and sort of expand in its, in its own kind of uh, knowledge and, you know, uh, uh, in its own sort of internal passions. And Wipro Digital was set up only a few, I think a handful of years ago to try to focus that on, you know, digital uh, transformation and technology specifically. And so Pivotal, I think, is really uh, just going to be a, 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 I think it's going to bring a whole bunch of new learning and sophistication and other sorts of tools. Like, we're going to learn so much from Pivotal, and I think that's that's really one of the big benefits um, about working together is that we get to sort of, we can contribute scale, and, and uh, there's some really deep expertise inside of Wipro and Wipro Digital, and that by working together, we're going to improve you know, both companies, it'll be a mutual benefit. So I'm really excited to see that. I mean, part of what was exciting to join Wipro in the first place from Cooper was, again, that kind of going from a very small to a very large organization. We have a chance to, yeah, have a bigger impact on our clients um, at a much bigger scale. And so, you know, the, the projects that we're involved in already are, are you know, vastly, vastly larger and, and uh, more impactful and more interesting in, in my view. Uh, so hopefully with Pivotal, that can continue to grow. Absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to see where this goes. Uh, and I would love to have you guys come back on, let's say, six months, a year. Let's let's see how it's uh, progressed. And maybe we could talk about some customers and uh, some of the great outcomes sure. we're seeing. So, guys, thank you so much. This has been really educational for me, uh, coming into this, not knowing a ton about design. I really appreciate it. I think our listeners are going to really appreciate it, too. Uh, so thanks again for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jeff.